Well, good morning, and if you brought a Bible, go ahead and open it to the book of 1 Samuel. Again, my name is Ryan. I'm the pastor here, and glad to be with you this morning. Glad you're here. If you um, either, if you are just joining us, or maybe you have been with us, you know that we are in a new series called uh, "The Life of David," and it's called that because we're looking at the life of David. And uh, what we're looking at as we look at David is how to how to learn how to live out of the grace of God for His glory. And as we look at David's life, we're going to see a number of things about our own life, but we're also going to see, hopefully, Jesus as well, and learn how to see Jesus better by looking at David. Uh, Specifically, we will see how David prepares us um, as Christ's anointed, uh, some of the things that we've been saying throughout this series. And last week, we looked at David and Goliath and how David um, fights a battle for Israel that Israel, who is afraid and completely dismayed uh, on the sidelines, can't fight for themselves. And how we understand more of what God is doing in his representative or his anointed in David that he ultimately does for us in Jesus who comes and dies for us, fighting the ultimate battle for us uh, over our sin and death. This morning we come to what is the beginning of uh, many challenging years for David as King Saul makes attempts on David's life in order to preserve and secure his own kingdom uh, and the kingdom that that he would hand down to his son, Jonathan. Um, We won't talk about this this morning, but you'll notice another parallel that as soon as David is anointed, such as Jesus is anointed as well, um, this anointing, what what follows, uh, isn't a life of comfort, ease, and bliss. Um, As Jesus was sent into the wilderness um, and and has many, many uh, challenges as he heads towards the cross, So David, in a similar fashion, after his anointing, for a good while will be on the run. And as we look at chapters 18 to 20, um, we're going to see here um, really displayed where where true peace and security comes from for David. Um, And and in contrast, we'll see what happens when uh, our lives are not built on what this true peace and security is, is where it is found which is in, in, in God alone and the life of Saul. So um, as we prepare for that, let me read, by way of preparing for it, l- let me read our scripture this morning. There's a lot here, but remember it's three chapters, and we won't be covering all three, ch- we'll be reading through all three chapters, and, um, but it's, there's just so much good stuff here. So beginning in chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, and then as you see in your bulletin, we'll move on to chapter 20. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. Chapter 18, verse 1. As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. And Jonathan stripped himself of the robe that was on him and gave it to David and his armor and even his sword and his bow and his belt. And David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people, 
and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now to chapter 20, verse 1. Then David fled from Naoth to Ramah and came and said before Jonathan, What have I done? What is my guilt? And what is my sin before your father that he seeks my life? Skip down now to verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, The Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow or the third day, behold, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you, as he has been with my father. If I am alive still, show me the steadfast love of the Lord, that I may not die. And do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Verse 16, And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David, saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again by his love for him, for he loved him as he loved his own soul. Moving to verse 30. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan, and he said to him, You son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, Why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. Verse 35, In the morning, Jonathan went out into the field to the appointment with David, and with him a little boy. And he said to his boy, Run and find the arrows that I shoot. The boy ran. He shot an arrow beyond him. And when the boy came to the place of the arrow that Jonathan had shot, Jonathan called after the boy and said, Is not the arrow beyond you? And Jonathan called after the boy, Hurry, be quick, do not stay. So Jonathan's boy gathered up the arrows and came to his master, but the boy knew nothing. Only Jonathan and David knew the matter. And Jonathan gave his weapons to his boy and said to him, Go and carry them to the city. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another, David weeping the most. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us in the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you, and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. This is the word of the Lord. Let me pray and ask God to teach us his word this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for your word to us in 1 Samuel. We pray now that by your grace, we would 
see and hear things otherwise we could not through your spirit alone. That we would see you more beautiful and believable than when we came in here. We pray, Lord, that you would create in our hearts good soil, such as the word would go out like a seed into good soil, that it would go into our hearts and produce a fruit that we would leave here, change people. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. Well, we're going to be talking about covenant this morning, and um, how do you distill three chapters? What I want you to think about in these three chapters, and there's a lot going on in here, is we get probably more so than any other place that I can think of at this point, in the Old Testament for sure, um, a picture of what it means to be in covenant with God. We talk a lot about covenants. Um, God has made a covenant. God works through covenants. He's made a covenant with us in Christ, which is another word for promise, as we'll see. But I think we miss something uh, about what it means to be in covenant with God. Um, this could be culture, could be you know, we are contract. We, we, we work by contract a lot of the times, and so we think of the, the staleness of papers being signed, and, and here's my side of the deal, and here's your side of the deal, and then we go on. But, but covenant, especially as we see the way the Lord enters into it with his people, is a far more intimate thing that actually David and Jonathan show us in this text, probably more so than anywhere else. And so that's what we're going to look at this morning. And what we're going to see about the covenant is that this is the place where true security is found above anything else. So if you're looking for peace this morning, if you're looking for safety, um, look, at, look, look no further than the only place where true peace and security can be found. And that is within God's promises to you that he binds himself to. So to that, we're going to see the nature of covenant here at the beginning for our first point. We're going to look at the characteristics of a covenant, but really the characteristic of a covenant, which is friendship uh, from this text. And then we're going to see the prize of covenant. So first, the nature, the nature of covenant. Um, as, as we read, David comes right off the battlefield after fighting Goliath. And uh, we read in verse 6, and I didn't read this part, so there's a lot here that I'm going to pull from that just we didn't read. Um, but I'll do this for you so you don't have to turn there unless you want to. Um, and as we get to verse 6 in chapter 18, it's a celebratory moment, right? Everybody is singing and dancing, and, and why not, right? There's, there's been this major victory, as we saw last week, over the Philistines, and, and not just the Philistine, but the Philistine Goliath. And they're singing. And what are they singing? We see in verse 7, they're singing this, Saul has struck down his thousands. Sounds great. Until we hear what? And David is ten thousands. Hmm. And then immediately following in verse 8, we read, And Saul was very angry, and this saying displeased him. He said, They have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands, and what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. And then by the, by the time we get to the end of 19, we read, and So Saul was David's enemy continually. From this point on, everything that's at the center of Saul's life, his kingdom, his power, his reputation, the approval that he, that he desires from the crowds even, it's shifting. It's moving. 
It's going away, and Saul can't control it or stop it. And instead of finding refuge and finding security in the Lord, which is still available to him, Saul looks to himself. Saul looks to himself. Saul, Saul looks to take matters into his own hands. And as a result, like any good reality TV series on Bravo, everything in Saul's life begins to unravel and grow more and more chaotic and uncertain. It is, as one good quote about any Bravo show said, it is a train wreck that you just can't look away from. This is what will become a Saul over the next three chapters. In chapter 18, just to give you a taste of it, he tries to kill David twice by sending him to the front lines of, uh, to battle the Philistines by offering one of his daughters in marriage if he's able to do the task that Saul asks him to do. By 19, Saul sends guards to David's house to kill him. That doesn't work. In chapter 20, Saul's family is against him, and he attempts to kill his, even his own son, Jonathan. Again, it's a train wreck. But nothing Saul does works here, and this is part of the point of these three chapters. You'll notice the word success over and over as it uh, refers to David. And in fact, what, David, what is David's success, it only serves right, to anger Saul more and more and more. So much so that Saul is not only angry at David that we read, but he's afraid. And he's afraid because all of this success is evidence that the Lord is with David and not with Saul. And so it's a reminder for us as we go back two weeks to chapter 16 that as the Spirit of the Lord anointed David, and this is about kingship, this isn't about salvation at this point, that you are my king, right? Saul's, or the Lord's spirit in verse 14, the next verse, it departed Saul, saying, now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Everything David does now will remind Saul of this, so that by 18, chapter 18, verse 12, we read that Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him, but had departed from Saul. In other words, the anger and the fear of Saul is not something coming up from God, right? The anger and the fear of Saul is a result of what happens in life when we, what, try to captain our own ship. When we build a life upon a foundation of our own choosing. One formed outside of the covenantal promise or the steadfast love of God himself. And we see this so clearly in Saul's life in contrast to David and Jonathan's. And that's, that's really what, what these next three chapters are, 18, 19, and 20. It's a contrast between who is, is finding their security in the covenantal promises of God himself and who is not. As I said earlier, a covenant is a promise you might consider it's a formal promise in the ancient Near East. You might have heard of, of the ways that they conducted this promise, that, that two parties coming together would actually take animals, which would be a, something of value to them, a cost, and they would sacrifice those animals by splitting them in half, right, lining them up, and then the two parties would walk between them. And the purpose of this, I mean, wouldn't you like to see this outside um, one day? I, the purpose of this is to say that as, as, as the two parties walk between, right, if I break my side of the covenant, so may I be as these, anim as, as, may I be as these animals. In Scripture, though, God always communicates to his people through covenantal promise, except when he does it, 
It's not he keeps his side of the bargain and you keep yours. Although, yes, you should. But it's clear that we can't. And so what does God do? He binds his promises to himself. And friends, that is where the security comes from. That's why covenant is so important throughout Scripture and why we get this picture of what that we do in the midst of the most chaotic scenes in David's life and in Jonathan's life. They actually have peace because they, as we'll see here in a minute, they, they are under and in God's covenant with them. The same covenant that God calls him to, that he binds himself to, which is where the security in life for them, but also for us, comes from. This is why covenant in the Lord is the foundation for true security. And Saul is showing us what happens when we build our lives on anything else. I'm not saying that the, the, the Russian skating team is building their life on something else, but I don't know if I've seen a more chaotic story um, over the weeks than I have than what's coming out of that team. And, it, and it's really this hard. I mean, it, it, I, my heart breaks for these girls who are skating. I don't know if you followed any of it. Um, but it all sort of started with this, the, the prodigy skater who's 15, who is now being you know, charged because she's been using or supposedly using illegal substances. And this has caused a lot of drama with the team. It's put everybody's efforts in, in jeopardy. Um, but, you know, you, this stuff kind of comes out every once in a while, and you think things are going to be okay, and we'll get through it. At least uh, it won't affect the whole team, except this week, right, here's a headline, silver medalist vows to never skate again after missing on gold despite Camellia Believa's fall. Alexandra, who is the one who got silver, she hits five quads in this routine that she did, which is un unheard of, and misses gold by four minutes and 22 seconds. This, on top of Camellia, the one who is charged with using illegal substances, uh, we see her in another scene crying uncontrollably over the disappointment that she has in her life for failing herself, or her family, the country. And you just get this picture of everything falling apart. Again, I'm not saying anything about what the Russian skating team is building their life around, but it, it's just a reminder that what we can build our lives around in this world is so fragile. I, ha I have to assume that there's, that there's been some, some sense of joy and satisfaction in wanting to win a gold medal and skate. For them anyways. But just like that, in the blink of an eye, in a moment, right, everything can go away. Everything can go away. This is true for all of us in all of our lives. Some of us know that more than others. Some of us have experienced different seasons of life where like, what we thought was stable, what we thought was secure, is not anymore. It's gone away. And if you're young and have your youth, just wait, right? The things that seem to be the most promising, right, the things that seem to be, that give us the most joy or, or offer the most success, right, in an instant can unravel with nothing but unconsolable tears. And regardless of where you find yourself here this morning, all of us are building our, our lives on something. 
And as we look at this text, we're called to ask what that is. And as we look at Saul, right, we begin to see the picture of, of here's what happens when my life is being built on something outside of the covenant of the Lord, outside of the foundation that he gives for true security in my life. Covenant really means nothing will get in the way of God's plans to rescue and redeem his people. And what's sad about this whole scene is that David is actually God's provision for Saul and Israel. He is God's provision, as we saw two weeks ago, to rescue and redeem his people. In other words, David is supposed to be a blessing to Saul. And, you know, as you read this, as you follow the story, you think, if you're Saul, okay, sure, you got pulled from the game. And so a few words, right? As God's anointed, but you're not off the team, man. It's like playing on a basketball team and the coach subbing you out for LeBron or John Morant. That's only going to help you. But Saul can't see that. He can't see David as blessing because God's kingdom is not at the center of his life. Only his kingdom is. Only the foundation that that he wants to build for his life is, which is what he can control. God's promises, though, on the other hand, his covenant to Saul is not where Saul is looking for security and rest. He's looking for it in his own kingdom, in his own work and self. And because that's true, the foundation that Saul stands on is uncertain, and it's fueling right, the fear he feels all around him as he experiences his kingdom, which was never his to begin with, slip away. And this anger and fear, before we move on, it is not unique to Saul. The anointing and the removal of that anointing, yes, But this anger and fear is not. This is a human experience when we build a foundation upon our own kingdoms. And what are those kingdoms that we we build on? We build on kingdoms of comfort in the West. We build on kingdoms of self-preservation. We build on kingdoms of wealth. These are the places we look for security. We build on our own kingdoms of power. But none of it gives us the security we long for, and as a result, we grow what more anxious and fearful. I don't think this first point, I don't think I have to labor too hard to to press this upon us. Like, we understand this. And perhaps the pandemic itself has exposed this to you in certain ways that we really uh, can't do enough to keep this virus from spreading. Going on two years. It's been interesting reading now about the guilt and the shame that people feel when they, in their minds, have done everything that they can think to possibly do, but then find out that they still get COVID. And you want, it's a virus. And they say, how did this happen? Can we provide our own security in life? That is, that is being confronted with every single one of us right now. Many remember the 2008 financial crisis in the, uh, the housing market. Can I really provide myself the security I think I can in my wealth? 
Go for it. I can tell you what will happen. And it's not that you might not get wealthy. That's great. But that wealth will never give you what? The security you're asking for. Saul's experience is not unique to him. And the anger and the fear that he feels is a human experience when we look outside of what God provides for our security. What has God provided for Saul's security? It's David. And he refuses to see that. And to give himself to that. This is the first point. This is the nature of covenant. Let's get to the second point, the characteristic of covenant, which is friendship. Because in stark contrast to Saul, we have Jonathan. And as we read chapter 18, those first five verses, right? Right as David comes off the battlefield, in stark contrast, instead of rejecting David, what does Jonathan do? He submits to him. He submits to him. Just as Jonathan, who is Saul's son, <clears throat> does in, in, in 18, chapter 18, in verses 1 to 5, Jonathan submits to David and to his rule and authority as God's anointed by stripping the very robes of kingship that belong to him as Saul's heir. Jonathan is saying, you want to sub me out? Fine. Right? Why? Because he can see. He can see the blessing of David as David is not a threat to him. He can see the blessing of David as God's faithfulness to Israel. Right? The one that he has provided in his covenant between David and Jonathan and its implications. And these implications are what we experience all the way through chapter 20. And one of the ways that this is experienced and expressed is through friendship. It is said that you are an average, you are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Think about that. You are the average of the five people you spend the most time with. Psalm 1 says that the gateway, which is referred to as the gateway of the psalm, says that those you, you walk with, stand with, and sit with, they matter to your happiness. Those of whom we keep company play a big part in our happiness. And who are those people? Those are your friends. The ancients understood this, and it's why friendship was at the center of their moral philosophy, though they didn't have reference to the Word of God. Plato uh, would say this about friendship, that friendship was the school in which a man learns what it means to love others, broadening outward from friends to all fellow citizens. Aristotle would say, he, he taught, that no man can become good without friends who are also good. And no state can become good without esteeming the institution of friendship. Cicero the great Roman statesman who, among all the pagans, was one of Calvin's most admired, wrote a treatise on friendship in which he says, With the single exception of wisdom, I regard friendship as the greatest of all gifts the gods have bestowed on mankind, greater even than kinship, wealth, health, power, or public honors. Fast forward to C.S. Lewis in The Four Loves, who says, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. 
The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. I think that's pretty interesting. Do we ignore it? As we come into this section? And I don't know if it's a question of do we ignore it, but I think it's a question of do we value it? Do we value friendship the way that the ancients did? And an argument can be made that we do value friendship, but we just value other things above it, right? Like freedom. Equality. Those are things I think we value above, above friendship in our culture, rights, individual rights. And so if you listen today, right, what do you hear our culture saying about friendship? Friendship is good. It, it, it is the, you know, you might, you might call it um, sort of the elective and private aspect of life. Like if you can find it, great, go for it. You, if you want it, have it on your own terms. But it's, it's not the priority. It's not what's important. And as a consequence, we miss out on what the Bible describes as the characteristic of covenant, which is friendship. But not in a sort of passive way, not in a superficial way, not even in a sentimental way that we might think of friendship, but in the ways that you actually just heard described. The most important type of a relationship, people would say. That for us to understand covenant then is to actually understand friendship, which is why for some, when we come to scenes like David and Jonathan in the Bible like this, that can make us feel uncomfortable. What is going on here? Did you know that as late as the 19th century, people held covenant ceremonies to pledge lifelong friendship to each other? Even people who were married would pledge lifelong friendships to each other. Almost a Naomi and Ruth situation. Where you go, I'll go. Where you die, I'll die. I think the last recorded one was some 150 years ago. I don't, what would it be like to live in a culture where we experience that? Where we value friendship in a different way? But as a result, we are more isolated and we're cut off with few places of what real refuge to go to uh, in times of need. But as we come back to David and Jonathan, what they show us is how covenantal forms a type of friendship that is a refuge among all other places of refuge. And if you get that, you'll understand what it means to actually go to God in that same way. I'm getting ahead of myself. Chapter 20 opens up with David fleeing again, this time to Naoth to see Jonathan in order to get word on why Saul is trying to kill him Um, again. And this is where David does something confusing. If we step back and we think about it, right, David, what what does he do? And as he moves in in chapter 20, he confides in the blood heir of the kingdom, Saul's son, Jonathan. Now, we we know there's a relationship there. We read this in chapter 18, but let's think about this. You, you You are being pursued by the king at this point in time. He's tried to kill you multiple times. You're running in every direction. Is the place you would go to the blood heir of that king? It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. If David dies, not only does Saul continue on the throne from a human perspective, but Jonathan would assume the throne after Saul's death. In other words, Jonathan has everything to lose here by helping David out. 
And David should, would know that, yet he comes to Jonathan, and not Samuel, for refuge. He visits Samuel, but it's not a whole lot of what he's looking for. Why does he visit Jonathan? And the answer is, from the text, is simple. It's friendship. Again, not necessarily in the way that we might talk about it, but in the way that the Bible talks about it. In covenantal friendship, characterized in this word hesed, which Jamie alluded to earlier. What's hesed? You can think of it as loyalty, but not just loyalty. You can think about it as mercy, but not just mercy. You can think about it as, as love, but not just love. It's a lot of things. David first refers to this in verse 8 of chapter 20 as he and Jonathan are making a plan as to how they will go about communicating to each other regarding Saul's anger towards David. He says in verse 8, therefore deal kindly with your servant. That word kindly is hesed. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you, reminding him of that. But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. And then Jonathan goes on to plead with him in 14, if I am still alive, show me the steadfast love, there's hesed again, of the Lord that I may not die and do not cut off your hesed from my house forever when the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. Covenant and hesed, friends, are corollaries of one another. With a covenant made in the Lord, hesed follows. This is what they're, this is what this is what they're, they're showing us. And this is why David finds refuge in Jonathan. This is why he goes to the blood heir. Because of what this means. Hesed carries ideas of love, compassion, affection, but often with the additional connotation of loyalty, reliability, faithfulness, hence steadfast love. That's the best we can do in the English. I don't know if it's that good. Steadfast love. Hesed has that flavor, one commentary says. It is not merely love, but loyal love. It is not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. See, the ancients believed that the purest form of what the Bible calls hesed was found in friendship, not marriage. Not that you can't find friendship in marriage. Don't hear what I'm not saying. But marriage back then was what? More practical, and it was necessary for sustaining life. A spouse had to stick with you for their own survival, but a friend chose to stick with you. That's hesed. We hear this word used, though, in Exodus 34, 6-7, after the golden calf incident with Israel. God makes a new covenant with them, giving Moses the law, and here's what he says about himself. This is Exodus 34, 6-7. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God of mercy, merciful and gracious, sorry, the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in hesed, and keeping hesed for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers of the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. Okay, so what's the point? The picture here for David is of all the places he could go for refuge, for security, he goes to what is most like God. The only sure thing there is, that's in a friendship. A friendship formed in covenant that he has made with Jonathan before the Lord, where he expects Jonathan to show him hesed just as the Lord shows hesed. 
In other words, what David knows of loyalty and what he knows of love and refuge and security only comes from the way that God himself, Yahweh, right, has dealt with him and has dealt with Israel in the past. Well, the ancients missed then what David and Jonathan knew and what they are living out before us is all that is loyalty, love, mercy, friendship, steadfast love comes from God himself. And it's not just sort of this objective, like it's the, it's the experiential. This is what we've experienced from God. This isn't just sort of static. You see, you see this coming off the page here, Right? This is not just some random scene of two friends hanging out together. You're getting a visual of what it means for God to be in relationship with you, more so than anything else. And this comes back to what we think about when we think about contracts. We think about covenants, right? That it's not just a stuffy contractual agreement, right? It's the bedrock for the most faithful, loyal, steadfast love that one can find. Like a best friend who you can trust and confide in above anyone else. That's what David has in Jonathan. And why he can find refuge in him in the midst of one of the most chaotic times of his life. So when we ask, why does David find refuge in Jonathan? Why would he trust the heir to the throne? He does so as a testimony, not to himself and not even to Jonathan as well, but to the Lord. The picture of the power of the covenant here and the the trustworthiness is is that of God himself. And that's why Jonathan goes to him. So let me ask you, when you think of God's covenant with you, when you think of the relationship that the Bible clearly defines as this is how God relates to you, he relates to you in covenant. And if that's news to you, that's a good thing this morning. I'm glad you're here to hear that. He relates to you in covenant, in promise. And when you hear that, do you think of God's covenant with you, with his people? Do you think of a friendship like David and Jonathan's? Maybe for some of us, that's too uncomfortable. Like, do you understand that the creator of the universe's desire is, is that his spirit and your spirit would be knit together? I think that's fascinating, which is probably why I'm talking about it. But that, that has got to impact us, right? That has got to move us to see who it is that we're dealing with here. Do you see how God desires, right, for your spirit and his to be together? Do we have a category for that type of intimacy and friendship so that when we see it in Scripture, it's not foreign to us? It's a reminder of actually what is true in Christ. And this gets to my last point, the prize of, of covenant, right? So, you know, the, the second point is, is why David can go to Jonathan or can find refuge in Jonathan. But the, the last point is why is Jonathan able to give up refuge for David? And this is the prize of covenant. What what is the refuge for Jonathan that he's giving up? He's giving up his own kingdom. And why can he do that? Why is he giving up his own kingdom, which is his small refuge, right, but a refuge nonetheless, because he's got something better. He's got something better in David. And this is is where chapter 20 ends, right? As we read in verses 14 and 15, after David's plea with Jonathan in verse 8, 
Jonathan then pleads back with David, remember this covenant, remember your steadfast love to me, not just to me, but to my family forever. See, Jonathan knows there will be a day when David is officially king and Saul, his father, is not. And that those who were enemies of David will be cut off. And while this is where Jonathan finds his security too, he knows that having a share in God's kingdom is far better than any kingdom he could have for himself. Briefly, David and Jonathan move forward with their plan to discern Saul's intent. There's this feast, and he's supposed to go to it, but he tells Jonathan, uh, there's no way I can put myself in the presence of your father. I don't know if he's still trying to kill me. He's only throwing two spears at me at this point. So they come up with this plan that Jonathan would make an excuse for him that he's doing some type of ceremony in Bethlehem. And he would find out because they, you know, Saul tells his son everything. And if Saul is anger, angry towards David, then the next day he'll go out and shoot these arrows in the field. And if he's angry, he'll shoot the arrow beyond David. And then David will know that not to come to the, to the feast. But if Saul is not angry, then he'll shoot the arrow beside him, beside David who's hiding. And he'll know that it's safe to come in. But David misses the first night, and it's not a big deal. But then he misses a second night, and then we enter into this in verse 30, again around a table, and Saul is enraged. And uh, it's kindled, his anger now is kindled against Jonathan, saying, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman, do I not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame, to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives, on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore, send and bring him to me. He shall surely die. And so, I think that's pretty clear. <laughs> that Saul is angry. Um, and so, what does Jonathan do? He goes out and he shoots the arrows beyond David, which signals to David that it's not safe. And then we get this last glimpse in verse 42 of them meeting together. And I think this is the last time they meet, besides there's one other Thing that Saul or Jonathan goes with Saul to find David, but this is this is really one of the last. They don't know when they're going to see each other again. And what do they do? Where does where does this end? It ends reminding each other of the covenantal promises they've made in the Lord. And it, and it's no small thing for for Jonathan to say, "Peace be with you. Go in peace." Remind you, he's hiding out in a field. He's been running since chapter 18, just after he killed a giant. To understand the, the chaos of David's life, but to have the words, go in peace, should sort of be a little trite, but it's not. There's 100% peace as he looks at Jonathan, because he knows. He knows. See, covenant for Jonathan promises something far better than anything that he can even have on his own too. Peace for the Christian is not just peaceful circumstances, is it, right? No, it's, it's, it's having a center. It's that foundation. It's knowing that, that there's one that's pledged his peace to us in the midst of all that is going on in our lives. This is what David and Jonathan know. So as they meet one last time, Jonathan reminds him of this 
pledge and it's knowing that he has a share in the kingdom without end that actually gives him the peace to be able to move on as well. And ju- just to show you, uh, this is, don't turn there, Second Samuel verse nine, chapter 9, verse 1, and we'll come back to this story later after Easter. This is a story about how David shows kindness to a man named Mephibosheth. And who is that? But that is a son of Jonathan. And in chapter 9, verse 1, David said, Is there still anyone left of the house of Saul that I may show him kindness for Jonathan's sake? There is still a son of Jonathan, a man named Mephibosheth, who has crippled feet, the text says. And we'll hear again more about him after Easter. But for now, what does King David do? He says these words to him in verse 7. Do not fear, for I will show you kindness. I will show you hesed for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore you all the land of Saul, your father. And you shall eat at my table always. That's covenantal loyalty. That's hesed. And there is no greater security than that right there. Covenant over kingdom. Jonathan can give up his kingdom. He can give up his refuge because he has something better. And he has something better in the promise of David. That is his treasure. That is his prize. Well, as we leave this point and apply it to ourselves, the same is true for you this morning. You have something better than David, though, as you know, that allows you to trust giving up your small kingdoms, as it were, to have what moth and rust cannot take away. You have Jesus himself, the Christ. See, Christians do not have peace because things are peaceful. They have peace because a greater one than David has pledged his friendship to you. And that is Jesus himself. And his covenantal faithfulness, his steadfast love, his hesed to you is far better than anything you can reach for in this world. Ada took May and then Hardin to Fort Worth um, this weekend to go visit some friends. And um, this was kind of a fun thing, one just to go back to see their old place. But uh, they were going to surprise their friend. It was his birthday. And there's four in this little bitty group. And so as they are arriving, one of the parents took a, took a video of this. And this is so sentimental. It's sentimental to me. I'm not telling you this because it's sentimental. Um, but you'll, get, you'll, you'll understand why I'm telling you this. Somebody's videotaping this. And as May and Ann Harden run up to, 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 to surprise their friend. Um, and, and, you know, the whole thing, right? The friend sees them, totally surprised. There's smiles. And then the four of them do what? You know, Grab, grab shoulders, grab arms, and start just dancing and jumping up and around and down in a circle. Right? What a bunch of 7th and 8th graders would do. We've all seen this before. Right? We all know different versions of this. Right? Again, it's not about being sentimental. When we see things like this, and when I saw this, there's something about what they have between the four of them, which is no better place, no better thing to point to than friendship, really. Right? There's something that they have between the four of them that's better than anything each could have on their own. Whatever kingdom it is that they would want. And the picture that we are left here with, even as David and Jonathan depart, is the same is true for us in Christ, that Jesus invites you to that same type of friendship with him. That same type of hesed, covenantal, loyal, merciful 
um, fill-in-the-blank type of friendship. That we would actually believe that we, through him, have a seat at his table forever. That's loyalty and mercy and kindness attested. And, sh- and, and should we doubt or should we forget that this is actually how God relates to you, we look no further than this table where we see the death and the resurrection of Jesus for us. So what is your prize? What is your treasure this morning? What, what is your kingdom? What is it that you're holding on to uh, more than anything else to give you the foundation in life that will produce the most security in life for you? What is it that, it, that if this thing were to be threatened or taken away, it would bring nothing but anger and fear into your life? Upon who or what are you building a foundation and trusting it as a place of refuge, as a place of true security? Would you see Jesus through this relationship with David and Jonathan? Would you see Jesus as your true prize this morning? Would you see Jesus as your true refuge and security as something worth giving up everything for? Because he is someone what? who has given up everything for you. That's hesed. That's covenantal loyalty. And it's yours. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word, and we pray that as we digest all that's going on here, that we would look upon David, your servant David, your servant Jonathan, to see something that's true about Jesus and what he has done for us and his desire for us. And that is his covenantal loyalty to us, his friendship that he has pledged to us in any stage of life until we leave this place and see him face to face. I pray that in some way for those here this morning that need a place of comfort, that are, that are running, as it were, that are experiencing the chaos of life, that they would find peace in the midst of that pledge. For those of us who are here, and we're just glad to be here, life is pretty steady, would we be reminded of what we have in Christ in new and fresh ways that we may not begin to even move in the direction of attempting to build on a foundation other than the covenant that you have provided for us and your son Jesus, that we may never know a day of knowing what it's like to be in an unstable, uncertain uh, stage of life because we are trusting in ourselves. But though that day, should that day come, would you remind us about your mercy again? Would you remind us of your hesed towards us? And would you do this, we ask, for your glory alone, we pray. Amen.